Welcome to the Unity of the Valley Spiritual Center podcast featuring Reverend Dahlia Adams. You may visit us online at unityvacaville.org or you may visit us in person at 350 North Orchard Avenue in Vacaville, California. And now here is Reverend Dahlia Adams. Welcome again to Unity of the Valley Spiritual Center. My name is Reverend Dahlia Adams, and I'm honored to be here with you today. We've been spending time talking about the mystery. The mystery, the great mystery, if you will, the great mystery that as we try to understand it, we find ourselves asking a deeper question And then as we try to understand the answer to that question, still another deeper question. The great mystery or the mystery is the name that has been used to describe God. And we've been looking at the mystery from different perspectives, ways in which our lives are touched, changed, inspired, uplifted through the presence of this mystery. And as we open our awareness to the mystery, we open our awareness to the divine presence that is within us, around us, everywhere present. We've talked about the power that is within us, the power of the mind, because our minds are One with the mind of God, for we are expressions of the mind of God. Today, I'd like to talk about one mind and what that means. I heard an interview between Deepak Chopra and a Western scientist, a man named Dean Radin. We'll talk more about him as we go on. And they were discussing this idea, this philosophy, this experience of oneness in spirit. This experience of being one with God, one with each other, because we're all, all of creation is an expression of God. And Dean Radin, our Western scientist, was saying how difficult it is to move into that consciousness of knowing that. I mean, he's very highly trained in the scientific method. He has an engineering background and a science background. And, and for him, he's, he's working with scientific methods to try to understand phenomena or experiences that demonstrate to us our oneness. And and he was talking about the challenges of that. And Deepak Chopra, who is a medical doctor, also trained in sciences and very, very well versed in talking about the sciences. He says, for me, it's no problem at all. Because he said he was raised in a culture where that was the prevailing idea that spirit or God 
or the mind of God comes first, and everything else in comparison is illusory. Everything else is superficial or an appearance, but the deepest truth is the presence of spirit. So it was interesting to listen to this conversation because our cultural background sometimes makes it hard for us to grasp the truth of our oneness. It can make it hard to grasp the idea of one mind. However, our co-founders, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, were very aware of this truth of our oneness with God the one presence and one power that God is one. And for Charles and Myrtle to think about or talk about one mind would have been very consistent with the unity teachings. Charles Fillmore has written quite a bit about mind and one mind. And he said that man in the consciousness of the one mind has no sense of apartness. So when we get into this consciousness of the one mind, that we are an expression of the one mind, and when we're in this consciousness of oneness with God, with the one mind, there is no sense of separation with any of creation. There have been other teachers in the last century or so who have pursued this idea, who have explored it, and who have much to teach about it. Edgar Mitchell was an Apollo 14 astronaut. He was the sixth man on the moon. He was trained again as an engineer, an electrical engineer. He was the man on that Apollo mission to the moon who landed the, I don't know what they call it, the thing that made the lunar landing, the actual little, it's not a plane, module, the module that landed on the moon. So he was the one who did that on the way back from the moon, his job was finished. So he just had time to reflect. He had no demands on him. And he watched the planet, the planet Earth, our planet, as from, from space, from this deep darkness. And he had a, a mystical experience, if you would, a transformational experience where he realized that there was a profound oneness that we have with our planet, with each other, with the galaxy, with the universe. And it was a mystical experience because it was an experience of God's presence. And he realized that we're missing the mark in a lot of ways in our Western culture, that we're learning so much the technology that we've developed was so great that they were able to take this mission to the moon. That Edgar Mitchell was able to land this module on the moon. 
And yet we do so little to explore the truth of our oneness. We do so little to explore the truth of the power of our minds, of the capacities that we have as human beings. So when he came back after that mission, he completely changed the direction of his life. And he founded something called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences used scientific methods, the rigor of science, to explore, to study our minds and the power of our minds. Institute of Noetic Sciences is abbreviated I-O-N-S, or IONS. You're likely to see that instead of the full name. And they explore phenomena like something that I experienced in a small way in my personal relationship with IONS. They would, they would study phenomena like this. Again, it didn't feel like anything huge. But as I reflect, it, it caught my attention. I first heard of IONS when I was in Ohio, when I was in graduate school. I had to geographically place it. I was in graduate school. I was working at an internship. I was in graduate school full-time. I was a full-time mother. And so I was living a lifestyle that didn't allow for a whole lot of extras. And I kept getting flyers or pamphlets or little booklets about ions. I had never heard of it. And I would read the description and I would think, boy, this is really interesting. This is something that I would like. Someday I'm going to look into it. And once I made that decision of someday I would look into it, I... Um, and I think in my mind, I was thinking when I'm finished with school. And so I moved to Florida in the last phase of getting my dissertation and my license as a psychologist. And when I moved to Florida, I got some more of those flyers about ions. And I'm there, oh, I can't do this yet. I have to wait till I'm finished with the dissertation and finished with the licensing, and then I'll look into it. So I got my results for my licensing exam. I had my PhD. I got the results for my <clears throat> licensing exam, and I learned that I had passed all the exams I needed to pass. So now I was a fully licensed psychologist in, in Florida. That was on a Friday. Friday evening, I went to a party. I walked into the door and someone handed me an IONS flyer. Like that was the deal I had made <clears throat> that I would pursue this right after I was licensed. And on the day that I was licensed, I got a flyer about an, a convention, an IONS convention to be held in Kansas City. And I went. I remember that promise to myself and I went. It was a transformational experience on many, many levels. It changed the direction of my life a little bit, but in a good way. And actually, it did more than that because the change that was a little bit later 
facilitated a much bigger change. So, and noetic sciences would be interested in that. What was that in that deal I had made, just in my mind, and then to have that pamphlet appear that same day, and then that that would lead to changes in my life that were really good changes. Edgar Mitchell wrote about his experience as he was returning to Earth in the Apollo mission. And he said, I recognize that the idea of separate, independent, discrete things in the universe wasn't fully accurate. What was needed was a new story of who we are and what we are capable of becoming. And then years later, Dean Radin, he's an electrical engineer and a psychologist, is currently the chief scientist at IONS. Before that, he worked at Princeton. Stargate, which was a government program that was designed to study remote viewing for defense purposes primarily. He worked Bell Labs. He worked many other places too, but I just wanted to list the type of work he had done before he came to IONS as their chief scientist. He's written a number of books. Entangled Minds is a book about the ways in which our minds are really one, the way our minds are not fully separated, the way there is a oneness that underlies it. So Dean Radin wrote in his book, Entangled Minds, the idea of the universe as an interconnected whole is not new. For millennia, it's been a core assumption of Eastern thought. What is new is that Western science is slowly realizing some elements of that ancient lore might be true. So basically the sense of something deeper, something more basically true has been, much like Deepak Chopra said, has been the culture, the assumption in the East, and our scientific approach seems to be just catching up. So in Entangled Minds, Dean Radin describes the scientific studies that he did, what was involved in the studies, but he also has many, many fascinating stories that point out this experience of one mind. And one of the stories that he wrote about is the story of a young boy named Hans Berger, his experience of telepathy, the development of the electroencephalogram, and the birth of modern neuroscience. So Hans Berger, as a little boy, um, wanted very badly to study art or music. His family wanted him to uh, go into medicine, but he didn't want to do that. So he joined, when he was old enough, he joined the cavalry. 
and he figured it was peacetime, so he had a, would have lots of time to ride horse, horses, enjoy nature, and he wouldn't have to go into medicine. And he was out riding one day, and he had an accident, and he was thrown, and he was injured pretty badly. And when he came home later that evening, there was a telegram from his father saying that his sister had asked that this telegram be sent to make sure that Hans Berger was okay. And what had happened is at the moment of the accident, his sister felt this profound fear in a sense that something had happened to her brother and the telegram was sent. And this impacted Hans Berger so much, he wanted to understand, like, what was that? How could she possibly, possibly know that I was injured? So he changed the course of his life, and he did go into medicine. He studied psychiatry and the workings of our mind. And he wanted to know how the information in his mind about his injury could reach his sister's mind. So he thought that there had to be a way that our brains extend beyond the physical limit of the brain. And there was a way in which our brains set out energy signals, maybe. And that's how he developed the EEG. At the time he was developing it, he was ridiculed. He was laughed at. Again, culturally, this was not something that people could accept. But he kept working on it, and he successfully developed the first form of the EEG that we still use today. And it was this technology of the EEG that led to PET scans that was a more modern way of measuring the energy from the brain. And so modern neuroscience was then born with his invention. And he has been given so much credit in history books. He has been honored in so many ways. But while he was alive, basically, people found nothing respectable about the work he had done. So sometimes we're in the same place as we try to understand the workings of our mind and how our minds are, are so much more than the physical, how it is the spirit within us that expresses through our minds and that the brain is really a processor for that information. Sometimes there's ridicule for that type of work even today. It seems like we get so far and someone who's pushing further has a tough time of it. That's happened to Dean Radin in his life by certain segments of the scientific community. However, look up IONS. Look up the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and they're a highly respectable organization. Look at their website. Explore what they do. And he's, he is the chief scientist. So, and he writes about that, that not all people quite grasp what he's doing. So going backwards in history a little bit, in the beginning of the 
in the beginnings of quantum physics. Erwin Schrodinger was one of the pioneers of quantum physics. And he discovered and described a phenomenon that he called entanglement. And entanglement was this. They, they didn't see it all of the time, but it popped up frequently enough and it could be created predictably when two particles, tiny, tiny subatomic particles, interacted in any sort of way, they became entangled. What one did, the other did. If one was spinning to the right, the other would spin to the right. And if they would take one of these particles and move it away out a distance, and mathematically they've computed that they could move it across the universe, the two particles would still be identical in their behavior, in their appearance, in their everything. Whatever they wanted to measure about the one particle would be true about the other. And so this was, there was no time lapse. And they were able to demonstrate this experimentally with first short distances and then longer and longer and longer distances out, and it held true. In some way, the particle that was sent away knew what had happened to the particle that was, remained in the lab, and the, it had the same effects. Albert Einstein called the spooky actions at a distance. Entanglement was the official name, but that was Albert Einstein's. And what bugged Albert Einstein about it, he acknowledged that these were real phenomena and they were definitely intriguing. But Albert Einstein had demonstrated that nothing could move faster than the speed of light. And somehow these little particles had the information without any time lapse. So that effect happened quicker than the speed of light. So there was no travel involved. And no information was being sent. The information just was. And that's the idea behind one mind. There is an infinite intelligence, the mind of God, if you will, that we somehow can access at times. And what is known in that mind, we can know. We are not separate from the one mind. We are an expression of the one mind. The minds that feel so separate, so very separate, According to Dean Radin and our Western thinkers, again, the Eastern philosophers don't necessarily need to do this. We do have minds that think unique, individual, and separate thoughts. At this moment, you might not necessarily know what my individual mind is thinking. But what these stories and what these research studies show 
is that it is very possible for one person to know what is in the mind of another person without any time lapse, without any conversation. It is possible for the mind of an animal to know what is in the mind of a person and vice versa without any time lapse, without conversation, if you will. So there is something that is very powerful and very amazing that is true about our minds. We have the ability to create some spooky actions at a distance. And we don't fully understand it. We don't even come close. But what's important, I believe, is to be open to these experiences and to recognize that when they happen, they're not accidents. They are an expression that is true, and it is true about our very nature. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, another scientist, wrote a book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And in study after study, he also is trained in scientific rigor. He also gets a lot of criticism because he tries to scientifically study some of these phenomena. Um, but in Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, he describes just that, that they have um, watchdogs, oftentimes with a camera, so there's no human influence. And the moment that their owner picks up the keys and starts heading to the car to go home, the dog gets up and begins pacing in front of the door, or sitting in front of the door, or waiting. Not all dogs, but many dogs do. So what is that? How does that dog know that in that moment their owner is coming home? And they thought, well, maybe the dog just knows the schedule, but they varied the times that the owner would be leaving to come home. And it made no difference. The dog still knew. I had an experience when I lived in the Virgin Islands. I had a German shepherd, and she and I, you know, you connect sometimes a little closer to people or to animals, and I was really close to this dog. And we, it felt like we were in tune. And I was living, I was house-sitting. Beautiful, beautiful house on, way on top of a hill overlooking the Caribbean Sea, 270-degree view of the ocean, of the sea. And I was there for a limited amount of time. And the day was a Friday, and it was the day that night the owners we're supposed to be coming home. So I had packed up my things and I had moved all of my things to my new apartment. And I came back. I didn't bring the dog with me because I had piled up the car. Um, and the dog was there. I left I, to do some errands, came back. The dog was there. And I was just leaving for work. I, I had a job as waiting tables. And I got a call from the owner saying they were delayed at the airport. Could I spend one more night? 
So I said, okay. I went to work. I came back. The dog who never, ever, ever wandered off wasn't there. I looked all over for her. I went down the hill into town, and people told me that they had seen my dog walking through town, and it's dark already. It's like midnight. And I, and I finally couldn't find her. I, I went to all the places we had ever been. And so the new apartment was on the other side of town. I thought I'd just stop there and check on something before I went back to where I was staying. And this dog was sitting in front of my new apartment, in front of the door. It was a building with four apartments. She was in, the, in front of the right one. She had been there once with me when I was looking for a place. And that was about six weeks before. She was not there the day I met with the landlord. She was not there the day I signed the lease. She was never there when I brought things to the apartment. She had been there once, six weeks before. She never ran off. This was, you know, a very unusual event. And she decided that night that maybe I had forgotten her. She knew that that was moving day, and she went to that apartment. Sure. I mean, it could be a sheer coincidence, but I don't think so. I think there is more going on, and I think that this is one of those examples of one mind inserting itself into my experience, into my life. And I think if we could all sit down together and share stories, everybody would have a number of stories, either something that happened to you or something that happened to someone you're close with. There was a, a story in the news a few years ago, I don't remember which year, but there was a man in South Africa named Lawrence Anthony, and he took it upon himself to save two herds of elephants. The elephants had been labeled as dis disruptive, dangerous, and he decided he was going to save them and do whatever it took to allow them to continue to live there in that environment. And he spent time living with both herds, and the elephants learned to be with people through him, and their disruptive behavior ended and Lawrence Anthony went home. He lived in that area of Southern Africa. He lived there with his wife. And one day, a few years later, he had, I think he had a heart attack, but he died. He made his transition. And one or two days later, both herds of elephants came to his house and stood vigil for a couple days. And then they left. And they came single file like this. And when they stood there, they were very solemn. They, it was like people coming into a funeral home to mourn. And, and then they quietly left. Again, I don't believe that that could be a coincidence. That both herds showed up right after he made his transition and stood there quietly for a couple days.
There is one mind that we are all connected to, that we are all expressions of, and if there is one mind, then so many things start making sense. Larry Dossey, medical doctor, he was a twin, and he also had very bad migraines. So when he studied to be a physician, he focused on internal medicine. But in his own life, he was developing a meditation practice because nothing was helping his migraines, and the meditation did. He was also a twin, and he had the experience that twins report often of knowing what the other twin was doing, feeling what was happening, you know, for the other twin. His wife is also a twin, and she had had those experiences with her twin. So between the power of meditation to heal his migraines and his experiences as a twin, he became interested in how spiritual practices or a spiritual consciousness, how that impacts our healing. He's written many books also, one of which is One Mind. He wrote a book called Prayer is Good Medicine. He, he talks, he gives speeches, has discussions about the power of this. Again, just like Dean Radin, even though in many, many ways most of his work is mainstream and respectable, if you will, he has been criticized because he's pushing our understanding beyond the norms, if you will, much like Hans Berger did. <clears throat> so in this book, there are amazing stories of smoke signals and twins, and the twin stories are what I mentioned, you know, and there's several of them, and he goes into great detail on I guess there was one pair of twins that was separated at birth. They both ended up um, in the same profession. They majored in the same thing in college. They both were married twice. They both had wives with the same name. They both had a son with the same name. They both, you know, on and on and on. And then when they finally met, you know, it was like they had never been separated. And there are many stories about twins like that. The smoke signals was a story that really fascinated me. He, um, Larry Dossey wrote that most of us assume that the smoke signals that we hear native people using to communicate between villages are like a code, like a Morse code, and they convey information. And that's not it at all. What they do is they send up smoke to get people's attention. And everyone in the neighboring village who has this inner knowing that that smoke is for them, then sit down almost like in a meditation, but with the receptive attitude to listen for what the information is that they're supposed to receive. And then the person who was sending the smoke would sit and focus all attention on the information they want to send. 
so that the message then gets sent and received. The smoke is just kind of, hey, listen, I've got something to say. And the people who need to hear the message are the ones who take time. If people do not feel called by the smoke signal, they ignore it. And it wasn't meant for them anyway. I find that extremely fascinating. Again, the, it was the only time I read it in his book, but what I do know about that he writes about is always spot on. It's always accurate. So I choose to believe it. And there's so, so many stories like this. And one of the things that Larry Dossie says is we need to not think of the one mind as an infinite blob. It's not like anybody who, who is around gets covered by this blob of infinite mind and it's, it's expressed in the same way for everyone. What Larry Dossie wrote was, it manifests in our lives in unique ways. With those smoke signals, if people who weren't meant to receive the message sat down to listen to it, they wouldn't get the message. In the same way, Hans Berger's sister knew that something had happened to Hans Berger, but the mailman a few blocks away would not get that same information from the one mind. It is a very unique and personal way that it expresses through us. I had, like when my dog ran off, if she wouldn't be picking up information from people that were not part of her life, I don't think. I could be wrong there. But I've also had experiences, one where I shared with you how a close friend of mine who was in North Carolina at the time and without a car because he had driven with friends from Florida to North Carolina. I was in New York, in upstate New York, and I had experienced a very terrifying event in which I was being chased and attacked. And I was out in the country. I didn't know if anyone could hear my yells for help. And this person who was chasing me was violent and threatening. It was someone that I had just met a little earlier that day. And um, it was night at this time, and he was definitely threatening and chasing me. And I was terrified. As it was, there was enough noise. People heard it. The police were called. Everything ended up safe. But the next day, I was still shook up from this, and I was, again, in the country, upstate New York. I had never told my friend where I was going to in New York. He knew I was in New York that week in the country, but he didn't know where. I mean, it's a big state. And I'm walking along the street just kind of processing the night before. A car stops, he gets out of the passenger seat of the car, and he walks up to me, grabs me by the shoulders, and says, Dahlia, are you okay? What happened last night? What scared you so much? So he hitchhiked from North Carolina. He started that night when he got that feeling 
up to upstate New York. He happened to drive by me walking, and he asked me if I was okay. He and I were very close friends. We were not romantically close, but we were very, very close friends. And I think without that close friendship, that never would have happened. There was something in the energy of that friendship, something in the energy between us that opened the door for his knowing what I was experiencing. Again, what is that? When I think about it, I, I'm instantly mind-boggled. I'm right there with Einstein's spooky activity at a distance, you know. There is something almost spooky about it because that's not how I was raised. That's not how most of us were raised here in this Western culture. Dean Braden, the scientist at Ion said, when you drill down into the core of even the most solid-looking material, separateness dissolves. And that's physics. That's quantum physics. What makes quantum physics different from classical physics is that that which looks solid really is not. You know, when you go deep enough into the subatomic particles, you discover that what you have is energy and space. And energy is not something that has clear-cut boundaries. The other thing that separates classical physics from the quantum teachings is this idea of entanglement, that what can happen to one, the other experiences, and that knowing happens without transmission, without time. It's just there. Dean Radin also said, the universe looks, once you start looking deeply enough, the universe looks less like a big machine and more like a big thought. So that's the shift in knowing that is happening. This physical stuff, it's good. I mean, I like my physical stuff, but it's not at the heart of what is most true. And so as we embrace that, as we come to know that deeper and deeper, more and more our worlds, our universe, will be experienced as a thought, as something in the mind of God, as opposed to a physical thing. And so it is. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to support this podcast, you may do so at unityvacaville.org.